thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. team and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined by Zach Bitter, ultra runner and coach and holder of the 12-hour world record and a 100-mile American record. We're going to dive straight in with Zach and find out more about his journey as an endurance runner and what he's up to these days. Hi Zach and thanks for joining the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to chatting with you. Um, it's your first time on the show, though, so just for the benefit of our listeners who may not know you, can you share a little bit of information about yourself and what you're up to these days? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so I, I actually live out in California. Um, I do uh, a lot of a lot a few different things, I guess. Um, one of which is uh, running ultra marathons, training for ultra marathons. Um, I also help out. My, my main sponsor, Ultra Footwear, with some of their um, marketing uh, stuff in, in Northern California. Uh, and then I do a bit of coaching on the side, mainly mainly online uh, stuff. But uh, yeah, individual for the most part on that side of things. Yeah, cool. Have you always been a coach or has that come about um, from your own sort of personal journey as an endurance runner? Yeah, I would say it's definitely evolved at least. Uh, you know, I've always had like really good quality coaches that were important people in my life mm. um, when I was growing up and through college. So when I, um, my previous career was was a teacher and I did that for about five years, I uh, got involved quite a bit with uh, the extracurricular stuff between cross country and track and field. Uh, so that was kind of my my first exposure to, to coaching as opposed to just being coached. Uh, and, you know, I really enjoyed it. So when um, I started uh, having a bit of success with ultra running and, and certainly had a fairly unique uh, dietary approach to it, um, there, was, there was some interest in, like, individualized consulting and coaching. So I've kind of evolved my coaching uh, uh, into, into that side of things as well. And, and since moving out here to California, it's become a, a larger focus, too, as I've had a little more time to allocate towards, uh, you know, just more clients yeah, I imagined it was because of the the um, different approach that you take probably to a lot of your competitors, which we'll go into detail um, shortly. But I wanted to find out more about your running history. How long have you sure. been running and what's the sort of trajectory been? Yeah, I've you know, I've always had running, I guess, kind of in my in my life from an early age. I uh, I was very active as a kid, just uh, you know, mainly because um, you know, I didn't really like to to sit around all day, and my parents were incredibly supportive in you know encouraging me to try a lot of different sports. So, um, you know, I, I basically had a very open mind to any sport, and uh, it was pretty early on in middle school that I realized that uh, at least from running uh, as the primary focus of the sport, if I were going to be competitive, it was in my best interest to go for the longer events. So. 
that was kind of when I was introduced into distance running. Um, and that carried over into high school and college where I ran track and cross country um, throughout throughout those years. And then, you know, after college, I didn't feel like it was something that I wanted to set aside. So I, you know, I just kind of branched out even further and started focusing on even longer events. And uh, as a lot of people who get into ultra marathoning will tell you, uh, once you do a couple of them, they, they become quite addicting. So you you find yourself focusing a lot of your energies in, in running towards those type of events once you've kind of jumped into that world. Yeah, and so you're talking specifically about 100 miles? Yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't start with 100 miles, mm. but uh, I worked my way up. Uh, the first ultra marathon I did was a 50 miler. And, mm. you know, I've still done way more like 50, like 50K to 100K distance races than I have 100 mile races. Um, and, and that's mainly just because the amount of time, time and effort you need to put into a quality 100 mile can eat up a decent chunk of the calendar. And you can usually slide maybe two or three of those shorter ones into that same time window. So uh, while I'm still relatively young for an ultra running athlete, uh, I like to do some of the um, shorter ultra races as well. Um, but as I get kind of older and further in, I'll probably shift my focus more, more exclusively to that, that, that longer stuff of 100 miles and further. Wow, fantastic. So let's talk about your record. So that was in um, December 2015. Mm-hmm. And you did 100 miles in what time? 11.40? Uh, yeah, 11 hours, 40 minutes and 55 seconds. Wow. So I wanted to put that in context because um, it sounds very fast, but just for the benefit of our listeners, that's the equivalent of nearly four marathons at 3.03 pace. Yeah, yeah. It comes out to be right about a seven-minute seven mile pace yeah. uh, for, for the entirety. So, oh yeah, right around that, just over three-hour marathons. Yeah, so obviously our Australian listeners don't work in miles, so I don't know that seven-minute <laughs> miles means much to, to everyone, but I know that a three-hour marathon <laughs> means a lot. Sure. So that's huge. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so how did you do it? Um, you know, it's, it's been interesting. I actually, you know, a, a lot of ultra runners don't do, at least not in recent years, do a lot of, a lot of track events or even really, really flat hundred milers. Um, so for me it was, you know, and I've done, I've done way more of those and I have like trails or mountainous type races. So, um, for me it was kind of like the one thing I always focus on when I'm getting ready for an event that I'm trying to peak for is, uh, specificity. Uh, as you stretch out the further the distance specificity in your training to match the race course you're going to do and the environment you're going to do it in becomes just more and more important because uh, you have like every little variable just kind of expounds upon itself uh, as you get further and further into something like that. Uh, so for doing it on on a track like I did, it was, you know, I did spend a good deal of time on a 400 meter track just doing like uh runs or at least tempo runs or progression run type workouts uh, to get used to turning and and really uh, more than anything to get good at kind of turning my brain off and focusing on not being in that that little environment of 400 meters uh, was was really big into getting myself mentally prepared for the event um, and you know I've always well I shouldn't say always but like for the last five years or so I've paid uh, particular close attention to preparing for a race from a nutritional standpoint as well. 
Um, especially as you branch off into these 100-mile races, you're looking at uh, an incredibly large energy demand. So knowing where those energies are coming from and what's fueling that is is very, very beneficial in have running a consistent race as opposed to uh, one where you may have a lot of highs and lows or um, have your stomach turn on you and then have no alternative in terms of fuel. Uh, so for me, I, I take a very, very close look at that and, and get as fat adapted as I can within the context of my lifestyle. So, um, you know, it's it's uh, all kind of balancing things where I use enough fat in my dietary intake to make sure my body recognizes that as its primary fuel source, but I also use carbohydrates in a manner that will help me maximize performance on some of the faster, more high-intensity workouts. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that kind of like fits right into the training cycle as well. I'm always looking at it from two different windows, from the like, what do I have to do from a physical standpoint? And what do I have to do from a dietary standpoint to maximize my chance of doing doing my best at any given event? Yeah, fantastic. What made you want to do 100 miles on a 400 meter track? Uh, you know, it was it was actually kind of interesting. So I I used to live in Wisconsin, and we didn't have uh, a whole lot. Of, well, we didn't have any access to mountains. Uh, we had some good trails, but they're you know they're mainly flat or like sharp rolling hills. Um, and then when winter would come in, the trails were pretty much off, off the training board. So, uh, a lot of my miles traditionally, uh, have been on like flat pavement through cities and things like that. So like, if you go back to what I was saying before with specificity being kind of the king in terms of variables that you use to, to maximize your potential in an, in an ultra marathon race, uh, for me, it, it was, very much finding a race that matched some of that where I had a lot of my background in. Um, and it really kind of happened accidentally. Like my, my gateway into ultra marathoning was through the trails. And then, uh, I kind of, um, just randomly signed up for a few road races and then, uh, found out that I was quite a bit more competitive uh, or not even competitive, just felt a lot more like, um, a lot more in control and a lot more like, uh, comfortable with the race as it played out when I was on that type of a terrain. So in 2013, actually, I got invited to a event called the Desert Solstice mm. um, down in Phoenix, Arizona, and that was the first track event I had done. So I actually um, set the American record for 100 miles there uh, as well. And at the time, it was at the time I ran 11 hours 47 minutes. Um, and that's actually where I got the 12 hour world record. Cause on that event, I kept going after hundred miles and ran till I hit 12 hours and it happened to be far enough to, to qualify for that as well. Um, so that was a, such a positive experience for me that I was like kind of really intrigued at that point on, you know, what are my other options in terms of like these flatter, sometimes track related type ultra marathons. Yeah, okay. It's just I just think it's fascinating. Like the mental toughness to run around and around in circles is just beyond <laughs> beyond me. Yeah, just, it's it's really it is intriguing and it's funny I always say this because like the sport of ultra marathon is so so varied. Like you can have anything from a 50 kilometer where there's so much climbing and descending it takes the top guys twice as long as it would take them to run on a flat one. Mm. And then you have events where you're on a track 
uh, sometimes an indoor track for seeing how far you can go in six days. And it's just like that's all ultra marathon running. But really, those two disciplines couldn't be any further from each other in the way you kind of prepare for them. Yeah, that's true. It's fascinating. Obviously, the, the speed comes back to the terrain. So it makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. But it just I can't imagine it would be, um, you know, as enjoyable as being out in nature. Yeah, it's it, it really comes down to, I think, your mindset with it, too. I know, um, for me, like, it, I, I there's parts of it that's incredibly not, monotonous because you really are just doing one thing the entire time. You're really just going around in that circle. But then on the other hand, that very singular focus really allows you to kind of, like, analyze, like, the fine details of, like, your running stride and, like, everything it's like it's really to me running at its purest because like uh you're in tune with absolutely everything whereas for me when I'm out on the trails and stuff I'm paying just as much attention to making sure I don't trip and (laughs) all these other things Mm. and like what's coming up next what hills next what's turns next and stuff that I'm not quite as in tune with some of my like uh like my uh my signals from my body in terms so there's it's, it's kind of two different two different things but you know if you let it get to you it's definitely can be a struggle uh when you when you're on a track like that and you're seeing the same thing over and over again yeah i guess that's a good way to look at it um but yeah i think your mental toughness is far greater than mine so if you can do (laughs) nearly four straight marathons at 303 what's your straight marathon time uh so you know i've never actually really really geared up for a for a solid marathon. I, 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 at the time, you know, when I first got done with college, I, when I was doing it, I probably thought I was really going after it, but really I was just running a lot. Um, right. so I've done like two thirty one. I think is the fastest I've done. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think I did that time on an, actually on an indoor track in the middle of winter, like when I was living in Wisconsin, it was just, kind of like a jump start to my speed work session. So it was, it's something I'd like to kind of revisit, I guess, for at least a little bit, just to kind of see if I can dip under, dip under that two and a half hour mark by a decent chunk and see where, see where I could really go on that. Yeah, it'd be a fantastic comparison now, particularly because you've been doing, you know, 160 plus Ks for the majority. Right, yeah, yeah. It would be interesting to see, see like, the training difference in that and mm-hmm. um you know some of the intrigue comes too because i've i've been doing some faster road 100ks in the last few years and i feel like the training for that would be somewhat similar to a marathon um there'd definitely be a few little things i would tweak but uh it's just always kind of nice for me anyway uh to switch things up a bit where it's like i'm not doing the same training block over and over again whereas yeah. if i'm doing you get done with an event and your body recovers, it's a lot easier to mentally reset and mentally refresh yourself when your training plan looks a little different. So you've got some some nuances. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I think that's the specificity that you talk about, though. So it's obviously very relative to the type of race and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk nutrition. So for those that don't know... Um, Zach is a very well fat adapted athlete and was involved in the FASTA study that we've spoken a, a lot about here on the show. Um, but I wanted to start sort of way back. So 
you obviously have come from a traditional background. Um, so share with us what you used to do with your nutrition and any kind of challenges that that had for your ultra running. Um, and then what was your catalyst to make the change to real food and LCHF? Sure. Um, yeah, I guess like when I was growing up and stuff, I was never like what I guess you could consider fat phobic. So uh, it wasn't I, – I don't know if I ever really had a diet that was incredibly low in fat. Uh, but it certainly was – not higher in fat than carbohydrate. It was always, you know, what you would probably see in, in a lot of Americans who aren't paying super close attention to their diet. You're going to have higher ratios of carbohydrates um, than fats and proteins and things. Um, so when I started getting more into long distance running, like when in the college years, I started uh, uh, paying a little closer to nutrition just because I started kind of, you know, kind of thinking about uh, the training volume that I was going to be doing and, uh, how I was going to fuel that and stuff. And, um, I guess my first, my first thought was, uh, um, basically if I'm going to be burning X amount of calories more per day by these workouts, I need to kind of supplement them with a fast acting fuel source, um, which is a carbohydrate. So I basically just kind of added a ton more carbohydrates into my diet and not a whole lot more fats or proteins. So by by that general like kind of a positioning that I took, I ended up with a, a very high carbohydrate diet. Um, and you know that that was not something that I, I noticeably saw as a detriment while I was training in college. Um, and when I first started running even longer distance stuff after college, uh, but I did start to notice, um, in 2011, uh, I really kind of dipped my toe or I guess jumped full bore into ultra running and I did, uh, three milers in a nine week time span. Uh, and between those races and the like hundred mile week training stimulus that I had been doing, I started to notice that like, um, a lot of odd things were kind of happening. Uh, like I'd have a lot of like re water retention and like my ankles and sometimes my abdomen. I'd be waking up at night to go to the bathroom like multiple times and uh, just like huge energy swings during the day where, you know, you feel like you could almost just lie down and take a nap in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, and a lot of stuff that like I didn't necessarily see as being ideal health uh, components for someone who was in their mid twenties. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I basically asked myself, uh, do I scale back the level of training and racing I'm doing uh, in order to kind of like fix some of these issues that were kind of cropping up? Um, or do I try to find a way to make that go away nutritionally so that I can kind of maintain this lifestyle? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I really enjoyed what I was doing. I wasn't doing it out of burden or anything. So I wanted to maintain the lifestyle. Uh, so my first, my first, uh, look into it was through a nutritional approach. Um, and, you know, then 2011 is, is kind of when the whole high-fat, low-carb stuff started started picking up a little bit of momentum. And, you know, guys like Dr. Finney and Dr. Jeff Bollock started uh, really putting together plans for some experiments to kind of show the legitimacy of using fat as a primary fuel source in, in both uh, – just 
general health and as well as in like endurance athletics stuff like that so um you know i it was kind of funny because at the same time i looked at how much time i was actually spending training and then you know at the time i was teaching full-time as well and it was almost felt a little guilty how much time i was investing into into a hobby so to speak so i i was i asked myself like how could i kind of kill two birds with one stone and um, you know, I quickly found podcasts and audiobook, great way to kind of learn as well as train at the same time. Yeah. So I started just like consuming a, a massive amount of podcasts and audiobooks and stuff like that. And, you know, it really does ebb and flow with whatever my piques my interest at the time. And at that time, it was very much health and nutrition. So, um, you know, I was listening to a lot of that stuff and kind of, uh, you know, you know, tweaking my diet and stuff. And, you know, I've had a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, a lot of people who've been able to help me out with that too along the way. Like I've, um, I mentioned Dr. Finney and Dr. Volick. I've been able to meet them on a few occasions and be part of one of Dr. Volick's studies as well. So having those resources, um, willing to kind of share and, and help out has been, been very good for me as well. Uh, but yeah, you know, I've always been kind of someone who's very open and willing to test things and try things on myself, like N equals one experiments. And the more and more I would do that, the more and more I would find out new nuances about uh, nutrition that would work better for me. And, and, you know, when it, when it worked, it worked. So like, it was pretty obvious. Like I would, I didn't start with a, a super drastic change. Like I didn't go complete ketogenic at first or anything like that, but I certainly flipped the flipped the carbohydrate and the fat ratios in my diet on its head. So rather than a diet that was like, you know, 60 to 70% carbohydrate, now it's 60 to 70% fat. Um, And rather than kind of supplementing my diet with um, some fat fat sources, it was like I was supplementing my diet with um, strategic amounts of carbohydrate throughout my training just so I'd be able to hit peak workouts ideally – um, but then, you know, I, it's, it's like a periodization approach like you would use with training where when I'm in recovery and stuff like that, I'm dropping the carbs really low. When I'm in peak training, I'm bringing them up. And for me, that, that window of like, um, peak training was kind of like a 20 to 30% carbohydrate intake seemed to be about right. Uh, which, um, could be considered high for someone who's like, really, really, um, dialed into like a ketogenic approach. But when you look at an endurance athlete, a 20 to 30% carbohydrate intake is an incredible dip in the amount of carbohydrates they're normally used to, to kind of taking in during their, their, their daily, their daily lifestyle. So it was very much kind of a trial and error type of thing where, you know, I've gone as strict, I've gone to like strict, uh, ketogenic style training blocks where I'm eating only 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. Um, but for me, I found that like when I dip that low, my top end training suffers and then it's like, I can't focus on, um, that end of things. But when I'm just like recovering or doing easy training and stuff like that, I can very much drop it low like that and feel perfectly fine. Um, so I always encourage people to kind of, you know, you test themselves, find out where their ratios are. And, you know, cause I've had coaching clients who can get away with much less 
carbohydrates than I have and do just fine with it. Um, and a lot of that depends on the lifestyle, the level of training they're doing and their focus on intensity versus like steady state training and things like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a, been a journey, but it's been a, a great one for me because it's been one that I've been able to kind of really, really, uh, cater to my specific needs and then kind of share that with other people so that they can kind of do the same thing. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I mean, so many good points in there. I, I think the periodization is huge and it's something that athletes forget to do. I mean, you periodize your training program, right? And you put as much effort into the the sessions and the recovery. And I think that often nutrition is treated quite differently when, it fact, when in fact it should be quite identical with periodization and that experimentation that you mentioned because everyone is so different and their genetics and their carbohydrate tolerance determines a lot about what they need and what what they need to change. Exactly. And, you know, the more and more studies that come out, the, the more, uh, like, uh, true it's kind of becoming that uh, timing is very ideal with that as well. Like, mm. you know, when, when you're taking it in is can make a pretty big difference in the way your body responds to it as well. So find, finding what types... For me, it's it's finding what types of carbohydrates to have when and like, um, and then kind of the right number, the right ratios of it at the right time as well, has been my main focus in the last few years. Uh, it, it very much started out, you know, kind of general, like let's switch a few things and see what happens, and then it was just kind of adding on it, adding on, and you know, now I've been doing it long enough where I'm in a position where I can really tweak some of those minute details because I'm very, very in tune with how my body is responding uh, to the to the dietary approach. Yeah, I think that's a really good approach. Um, I see a lot of people that sort of look at the big picture and can get quite overwhelmed, like when they're thinking about all the changes they have to make and doing it overnight, whereas, you know, you can make really gradual changes and you still get the metabolic benefits um, and it can be that journey where you really pay attention to what you need. No one can hand you a template and say, this is going to work perfectly. Right. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's very true. And um, people, people don't oftentimes consider the, uh, the stress component of things as well and how that impacts the way the body recognizes food and treats food and um, treats metabolism and hormones and things like that. So it's really all like one big holistic picture that um, if you try isolating any one piece of it, you're gonna you're gonna, you could end up missing something or miss a variables that are greatly impacting impacting other things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I think that's why we need to have such a holistic approach to nutrition because it's not just about the macronutrient ratios. But what was the actual catalyst for you? So intellectually i mean to me it makes a lot of sense obviously to use fat for fuel but as you will know very well the message is the very opposite in the sports nutrition world right was it literally just that it intellectually made more sense to you or was it um you know a conversation that you had with someone or what someone else was doing like what really made you decide to dive in um you know it it's it, it was uh it was a it was mainly like performance related like i i really wanted to uh 
uh, be able to compete in ultra marathons and I want to be able to do more than just a couple of them a year mm. with, uh, you know, I guess a, a casual training approach. I wanted to be able to do like, you know, really, really like hard charging type training approaches. Um, so it, it, that was kind of the catalyst, I guess, that got me intrigued. Like I need to look at something different. I need to try something different because I, I was very much eating what you would consider healthy foods at the time. Like I wasn't eating like like refined refined carbohydrates and sports supplements and things like that that you would you could you would you get you would hear is like, Oh yeah, that's not good for you. You have to eat real carbohydrates or real food and um I was very much doing that already. So for me it was like it had to be something to do with the the energy supply. Um you know, and I, I definitely did talk to a lot of people. I know um, uh, I was I got intrigued through podcasts and listening stuff like um, you know, like uh, Endurance Planet podcast, uh, the Ben Greenfield podcast. Um, I talked to Peter Dafty about stuff. Um, who uh, is also works with uh, Doctor Volick and Doctor Finney and on the endurance side of fat metabolism a bit and. Really, it seemed like anytime I would talk to someone new or listen to someone new, there would be like two or three more people that I felt had some wisdom that I could, <laughs> I could uh, benefit from, and I would, mm. I would often talk to them. So it, it it kind of is just the way I've always been. As um, you know, I, I like to learn. So like when someone has something I feel is beneficial, I don't hesitate to ask about it or research it and stuff like that. So. Yeah. Um, it, it very much kind of like spiraled from that and there's just so many people and information and stuff out there that I've kind of like ended up borrowing stuff from in order to kind of figure out what works for me uh, that it it's uh, it's been kind of an exciting exciting journey from that standpoint yeah and it just makes sense so right well you... and that's just mm, go on and, and that's just it too like had I had it been a struggle from the get-go, it would have been a, a different story. Like I don't know that I would have found my way through this as as well. But uh, like what I was saying before, with when I had all those issues kind of cropping up, you know, as soon as I switched it, like s- switched those uh, macronutrient ratios around a bit, I started noticing improvements in those things very very quickly. Um, like you often hear of like. You know, there's that that period of time where you just feel horrible, and there were certainly days where I felt like my energies were super low, and um, I knew enough to know to expect some of that. Um, but within a month or so, I started noticing tons of things, like sleeping better, sleeping through the night happened within less than a month. That started happening almost immediately, uh, and just like the inflammation and water retention issues went away almost immediately as well. So seeing those like things, kind of like switch for the better that quickly was was definitely motivating for me to like want to chase it down the rabbit hole and find out more and look and see all these other angles that are included in it yeah and obviously looking at all the performance benefits so you can get the edge over your competitors right right for sure so what about when you first made the switch did you do any metabolic testing? Did you know how much you were fat burning before you changed your diet, maybe based on just the training that you had done in the past? Um, I didn't actually right away. Like mm-hmm. I, I actually waited quite a while before I got any like hard numbers on it. 
But what I did do is um, I paid close attention to like how my body was responding in the training I was doing. So like before I would was on a high carbohydrate diet, what I would notice is if I would go out for like a 20 mile run or something on the weekend, it would be like those last like three miles or so you'd, you know, I wasn't like pushing like all out intensity so I could always maintain my pace. But I noticed like I'd have to increase effort gradually throughout in order to like kind of hit those same splits throughout the run. Uh, whereas when I was doing the high fat approach, things were, it was almost like backwards where I felt like I was getting a little stronger as I went on. Yeah. And as my, my body probably pushed further and further into, uh, the metabolization of fat, uh, it essentially recognized a much more unlimited fuel source and, um, wasn't as, as skittish about letting me cruise along at that same intensity without it feeling like I was pushing harder or running out of a fuel supply like I would if I was depleting my glycogen. Um, so I, I, I did a lot of that and, you know, just, you know, recognizing things like how, how long of a long run can I do on as little fuel as possible. And, um, that's kind of how I've actually still gauge it today. Cause that's more important to me is knowing like, what can I like if if I can go out for a really long long run with just water and electrolytes and feel fine then I know I'm fat adapted enough to be uh ready for a race and and uh and that's really the goal um but if I go out for like a long run and I and I bonk then I know that I'm not fat adapted because my body's dependent on glycogen if I'm bonking um so so that's kind of how I've usually gauged it, but I have done some metabolic testing uh, when, w while I was doing the faster study with Dr. Volick, and you know that's where I kind of put some pretty concrete numbers onto uh, onto the 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 stuff that I kind of already knew was going on, yeah. but it was, it's, it was kind of cool to actually quantify that as well. Can you share what your results are? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't know the exact specifics, okay. uh, but it was. I mean, I have them. Like, like I think I wrote a blog about it. Okay. Um, but it was. Uh, you know, it was. It was really high. Like I was metabolizing, uh, like well over eighty percent um, fat uh, when I was doing, like I guess, a, a steady state pace. Mm. So. Um, it was the the general like so I wasn't the only person that got studied, which I guess was ideal because they're kind of trying to compare. Um, if you're if I don't know how familiar you are, your listeners are with the faster study, but it was basically they took ten elite ultra marathoners that were on a high carbohydrate diet and ten who were on a high fat diet, and then they tried to pair them up uh, with what they called like a metabolic twin, so someone who had like similar race performances and like similar height, weight, and all that stuff. Um, and then they looked at like the ranges of fat to carbohydrate metabolization. Um, and for me, it was, uh, uh, one piece of data I do remember that I thought was really intriguing is my peak, uh, fat oxidation rate was like 1.56 grams per minute. Ah, that's what um, I want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So th that's the one people get the most intrigued about, especially, mm folks who are in the sports nutrition field because they'll know from textbooks they read in college and stuff that when you look at the charts like that outlier that highest one was like 0.9 to maybe 1.0 grams per minute so you know 1.56 
that's 50% higher than the the outlier. And yeah, well, I wasn't and I wasn't even the highest one. There were guys there who had like 1.7 and above who are like basically double or triple the average and you know double the outlier I guess for the high end. So it's just super intriguing to see that because we're all like you know we were all well trained athletes so it stood to reason that we had already maximized our fat metabolizing state from a training side of things. So any like variation is going to be due to the diet then. Mm. And um, it wasn't like this small little change that could be like, oh, it was just random by the guys we got. It was, there were big differences. Oh, absolutely. And look, like you say with the outlier, I mean, the average person is like 0. 0.4 or 0. 0.5. So mm-hmm. 1.56 yeah. is obviously significant. And the highest we know is now 1.8. So 1.8 grams yeah. per minute, which is like the 970 calories per hour, which is yeah, huge. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's enormous. That's that's like double the outlier. So you basically yeah. we we underestimated by almost 100% what yeah. the human body was capable of when you add in nutrition as well as, as training stimulus. Absolutely, which is one of the big points that we always make about the science, right? Because... The subjects that have been studied up until now were sugar-burning athletes. So, of course, we would get these results. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, have you made more changes since then? Do you think that you've got more potential than 1.56? Um, I think, like, if I really wanted it to, I yeah. could. The thing I've really noticed um, in uh, in training is I, you know, I pay close attention to my heart rate as well and, like, what that's doing at different intensities and um, where I want that to be at certain intensities to prepare for a race. And one thing I notice is when I let my carbs go too low, um, I'll, my heart rate will spike at lower intensities than it will if I have just a, a small strategic amount of carbohydrates in my diet. So, um, and it's not, it's not, I haven't done enough to know like perfectly how, how much of an impact it is. Um, but there is an impact of some degree. So I have to be kind of careful with that as well. Cause you know, you kind of, de- it, it defeats the purpose a bit. If all of a sudden I'm burning these incredible high rates of fat, but I have to run a minute per mile slower to do it. Oh, I so, totally agree. right, right. Mm. So from a health standpoint, that might be great. And when I'm recovering, that's actually really nice because then it puts a governor on me. I don't try to go out and do something, you know, burn myself out and which you see happen all the time in endurance athletics. Um, you know, guys are hopped up on tons of carbohydrates and they're able to run themselves into the ground. Um, you know, so I think there's, there's definitely good, good, uh, um, good reason for that to, <laughs> to hold you back. Uh, but yeah, I notice like when I have the right amount and it doesn't have to be a lot of carbohydrates, it's like that 20 to 30%, which, mm-hmm. you know, most endurance athletes would, would consider quite low. Uh, you know, I can get that. You know, I guess what you consider like a mapatone training approach, I can get that MAP heart rate or that zone two heart rate, you know, down down into the low six minute per mile pace. Um, whereas I don't think I could do that if I followed a strict ketogenic, like fifty yeah. to maybe a hundred grams of carbohydrates a day. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because we also see, unfortunately, that 
LCHF sometimes gets interpreted as no carbohydrates, which is definitely not the message that we're trying to share, particularly when we look at that periodization, how clearly you need more carbohydrates when you're training at a higher intensity, right? I mean, that to me just makes a lot of sense, but people seem to choose to forget that, whether it is that the influence of, um, you know, I guess the, the saturation of information where people um, forget to look at the, the finer details. But, yeah, you've obviously really looked at your heart rate, which is a really important part because um, that's how you get the, specific, the specificity of training and you obviously need the fuel to support that. For sure. And it's, it, it make, it's one of those things where when you step back and look at it, it almost seems silly that you don't, wouldn't specify your nutrition um, to match your, to match your activity level, you mm. know, cause it's, it's the same, like you see a lot of people, they, they want, they want, I think it's more, more so they just, they want guidance or they want something that's kind of cut and dry. So they decide I'm going to become, you know, like 80, 10, 10, or I'm going to become vegetarian or vegan, or I'm going to become uh paleo or high, high fat, low carb when, and then they, they kind of find like whatever template looks the most accurate for that thing. And then they try to follow it specifically. And then, you know, it'd be the same as like me saying, all right, I want to run far. So I'm just going to run far every day and then, you know, not do any recovery days or not do any like, you know, speed sessions or anything like that. It's, hmm. it's like you got to kind of step back and look at when things change, so should your diet yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, so I was going to ask you next about your actual plate. I think for when you speak about the 20 or 25 or 30% carbohydrate, that might be hard for our listeners to really understand. So if you mm-hmm. wouldn't mind, could you give us a little example of your, your meals? Yeah. So um, when I'm in those high training blocks and hitting that 20 to 30% range, mm. um, I don't always have the same thing all the time. I, I'm really bad at like kind of like, you know, all right, here's three meals a day like, you know, normal people would probably do. So like, I mean, there's days where I'll eat breakfast and then I'll go train and there's days where I'll get up and I'll train right away and mm. I'll basically blast right through breakfast and eat brunch or something. So there's, I don't know that there's necessarily a real, real super structured, uh, um, timeline to like when I'm eating. Mm. Um, but there is definitely like a, a pretty clear window of when I'm going to eat certain things. Um, and that very much revolves around what I'm doing in my training. So like I'll do, like if I get up in the morning and do a workout, like a decent sized workout first thing, you know, I'll start out the day with just like maybe some tea or coffee um with maybe a little bit of raw honey and and depending on what i have in the fridge between coconut milk heavy whipping cream or like almond milk or something like that sometimes i'll mix in with the coffee too and Mm -hmm. um uh, sometimes it depends on the 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 amount of training i'm doing to how much of that i'll use like if it's a real short workout small workout i won't use much at all but if it's if it's like a long run and I might not get back until lunchtime, then I'll probably put a little more coconut milk or whipping cream inside the coffee or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically when I get back from my – I do most of my training in the morning. Like the, the, the bulk of it is in the morning. So usually my first big real meal is around that brunch, lunchtime. 
and it's uh you know i i usually try to take advantage a bit of um the post exercise time frame to be able to like synthesize carbohydrates into glycogen at a higher rate so that, that's when i'll probably yeah that's when i'll probably eat the majority of the carbohydrates that i'm gonna have um for the day is after a workout um of course. so like if I do that workout in the morning, it'll be, you know, one thing I do a lot, especially in the summer, is I'll make, like, a coconut milk, like, um, fruit smoothie where I'll, I'll put, like, usually berries, some kind of berry. Uh, I focus a lot on, like, you know, like, blackberries, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, that type of thing. Berries and melons are the fruits I focus on just because they have a lot smaller impact on, like, um, your glyc – or a, lot, a smaller impact on your insulin – than say like uh some some of the other fruit sources would have uh but yeah that usually is a good way to sneak it in with some fat um you know so other times if i'm not think if i if i want like a, a meal as opposed to like a smoothie or something like that i'll make i'll make some like uh like a sweet potato or something and have some eggs with it uh and then some extra virgin olive oil or coconut oil or something with it as well uh, and that's, that's usually a pretty, pretty regular go-to post, post-run type of food sources. Um, then I, then I basically kind of gauge by like hunger going forward the rest of the day. Um, if the workout was big and I had smaller portions for that post-recovery, usually I would get hungrier sooner. But if for whatever reason I have a big hunger pang, like when I get back from the workout, and I eat more. A lot of times, I'm pretty satiated throughout the majority of the day. Um, I uh, so I kind of gauge by that. So sometimes I'll eat like I guess what would be a lunch for me. <laughs> um, not always at the right time, I guess. But um, that'll very much be just something usually simple. That like it might be leftover stir fry from the night before. You know, I'm a big fan of slow cooking because I can throw in a whole bunch of stuff. And then, uh, you know, eat what I feel feel like eating at the time and then stick the rest in the fridge and eat the rest later. So usually there's something like that sitting in the fridge that I'll have throughout the day when, I'm, when I get hungry. Um, then uh, dinner, dinner is, def- is kind of related. It's usually like whatever I was – that's usually the one I'll cook the most for. Um, but I'll make a lot of different like stir-fry dishes or like – um, low starchy vegetable dishes. If it was a big training day and I've got another big one the next day, I'll add some starchy vegetables to it as well. Um, you know, I, I usually have some, some meat source in that. Uh, I think, I do think one of the bigger misunderstandings though, is that like the high fat, low carb approach, you need to eat tons and tons of meat. Uh, you know, I definitely eat meat, (laughs) but I don't, it's not like, I, sometimes I think people think it's like a pound of bacon for breakfast and then like a rotisserie chicken for dinner. And it's like, it, you might have bits and pieces of that in there, but it's, it's not like the entirety of the meal either. So, um, uh, I'll usually have, have some form of like maybe grass fed beef or salmon or, um, or chicken with dinner, but it's usually probably, you know, between four and eight ounces. It's not like a crazy amount or anything like that. Um, sorry, I was just going to ask about your, um, your actual protein. Do you know what percentage you work well at? Yeah. Yeah. I usually find that like, 
right around a hundred grams a day is yeah. is pretty good. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't really feel like I have negative symptoms if I go like over or much, if I go up to like 150 grams, but, um, you know, I have paid fairly close attention to that in the past. And when, uh, when I get much above 150, it's, um, you know, it's almost like it's at, it's at the expense of a different food group that could maybe benefit me in some way. So I try to, and, and I just don't know that I would need more than that. So like that hundred grams per day is pretty good, pretty good. Like if I'm, if I really went hard and I'm recovering and I'm not doing a whole lot of physical activity the next day, then maybe I'll go up to 150 grams just because my body's in complete recovery mode at that point. But, um, yeah, that's hundred is probably pretty typical. So like, would that be 20% or slightly less? Oh, probably less, especially it's always interesting because like if I, if I'm recovering, I don't do any workout. Mm. My metabolic expenditure is like way less. Whereas if I'm doing like a, a hard workout day where I might run well over 20 miles and then do some strength work as well, then, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes burning two to three times the metabolic uh, rate that I would at rest. So, um, percentages, can get kind of goofy. Like if it's a rest day, then it might be up to 15% or so. Yeah. But when I'm going, when I'm training hard, uh, the rest of my intake is so much higher that it's probably actually closer to 10% or lower. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. But all very simple food. So I like that it's obviously just a way that you've um, made it really sustainable as well. I know that you're big on eating the whole animal so you take that sustainable approach um as as well as obviously looking at the periodization as we've discussed for sure yeah and that's that's been the huge thing for me too is you know from both uh i think just an overall health and like uh exercise performance base i think the whole animal is the way to go between getting the nutrients from the bones and a bone broth eating the organ meats as well as the fatty parts of the meat and then you know, some of the muscle meat as well, but you don't have to go exclusively that, um, is, is just great from a recovery standpoint. And it's also just, I think a lot wiser in terms of a consumer. Uh, you know, when you think about it, if you're eating, if you're eating chicken breast at a chicken breast for dinner every night, it's like, where's the rest of that chicken going? You know, it, it's, it's not very sustainable to do it to, eat part of it and not the rest of it. So it, it kind of makes sense just from, from a sustainability standpoint, as well as, you know, for me, a health and performance standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So I have two more questions. Um, I wanted to talk to you about your race fueling. I've seen on your blog that you fuel, um, anywhere from a hundred to 200 calories an hour. Um, which is that sort of 25 to 50 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Can you tell us more about what works for you and um, how you time that from a fueling point of view? Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess I should probably share, like, before I did the high-fat, low-carb, mm. um, my, my, my intake during a race wasn't as different in terms of what I was taking in as much as it was quantity. Like, I was definitely – closer to three, sometimes even 500 calories. So, you know, we're oh, talking wow. 60, 60 to a hundred grams an hour, depending on the race. And, you know, I've, it's funny, a lot of people come to the high fat, 
low carbohydrate approach because their stomach turns on them in yeah. a race and they have to figure out a way to lower their race need. Um, but for me, you know, I've always kind of had an iron gut. So like I didn't really switch for those reasons. I could actually get that in and it didn't really, it, it didn't seem to bother me during the event. I'm sure it was like, I mean, I noticed huge differences in recovery when I switched that. But yeah. um, so for me coming down um, to 100 to 200, on the very rare occasion, 250 calories an hour, it was a substantial drop. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it seemed like by not creating the level of oxidative stress required to metabolize that level of, you know, engineered carbohydrate, uh, that lower amount of oxidative stress you get from burning fat was a huge aid in um, flushing out the inflammation and stress post-exercise and feeling a lot better those days after a race and certainly getting back to training a lot faster. For sure. Um, mm. So you switched to the 25 to 50? Yeah, yeah. And it's been, for me, my, my general... My general approach is, you know, because there's there's folks who will who will when they get when they go with a, a high fat approach, they'll also switch their their race fuel or their training fuel to a high fat source as well. And um, I think some guys and gals probably do just fine with that. But my my general like thought was, uh, um, if I'm gonna utilize fat as a fuel source from a efficiency standpoint it would be better to rely on stored body fat as that fuel source as opposed to an exogenous source. Um, and that's mainly just because by metabolizing body fat as opposed to an exogenous source of fat, I'm bypassing the digestive tract completely at that point. So um, by doing so, I'm not giving my body another task at which it needs to use my blood supply for. Because, mm. um, you know, if you eat something, then your body's going to start shuttling blood to your stomach for digestion. And where people run into a lot of problems is when they, they start eating too much and it gets hot and all of a sudden their body's like, all right, I got to send blood to the extremities to cool. I got to send blood to the muscles to make them work. And then I got to send blood to the stomach to digest. And when it decides it doesn't have enough. The first thing it does is it quits the digestion and you start puking it up. So for me, it was always like if I'm gonna if I'm going to do this as a way to lower the amount I'm taking it during the race, I may as well focus on taking advantage of those those uh, larger supplies of fuel, which you know even on the leanest athlete is still fat. There's still way more fat calories available on your body at five percent body fat than there is glycogen stores. So um, my thought was I need to keep my glycogen stores topped off by taking as little carbohydrates as I can get away with um, and then just rely on body fat for the other part. So that's kind of how I came to the, the amount of uh, grams of carbohydrate I take in during a race. Um, and for me, it's I've always done really well with liquid. Uh, like I feel like it just gets into my, my system quicker and it gets out of my stomach faster and then my body can get right back to kind of doing its thing. Yeah. Um, after that. So I've had a lot of luck with, um, uh, X endurances, fuel five and hydro X electrolyte products where I can kind of hydrate and sneak in some of those strategic carbs at the right times. Um, and keep it at a low enough level where it's not, you know, shunting too much blood to my stomach. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you then decide which end of the spectrum you sit at, either 25 or 50, based on your heart rate? Um, I haven't in the past as much as I probably will going forward. Mm. You know, I've, I've paid attention to heart rate a bit in the past, but I've actually um, just recently started to really dive into that as opposed to more of a feel uh, standpoint. But for me, it's always been kind of like I'll look at like the – the pace I want to hit during the race and you know I'll kind of have an idea of what kind of fitness I'm in going in so I'll I'll know like I'll I'll, I'll know like hey if I'm going to be going if I'm going to be dropping down to a low 6 minute pace or under a 6 minute mile pace um during the race then I I probably going to need a little more carbohydrate than I would if I'm doing something longer and I'm just going to be at a slower pace but um for a much longer period of time so yeah. it's actually kind of kind of funny. You would think like, oh, he's going longer. He should eat more. But really, it's the opposite. The longer I go, the less I need per hour because that means I need less carbohydrates because I'm going slower. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it, it, essentially, it is heart rate. But at the moment, you're just doing yeah. it on pace. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're right. It's definitely heart rate. It's just I haven't done a good enough job to really calculate mm. the exact numbers that I'm at with that yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've definitely been doing more of that lately. And what about looking at the FASTA study as an example of different heart rates and what your actual requirements were at different intensities? Yeah, so that that is definitely kind of where I started, mm. started kind of coming up with those figures. The biggest uh, problem, and this is, just, is I just probably need to go do another metabolic test, yeah. is when I did that, it was like, I think it was like nine days after I'd done a 200-kilometer race, so... Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure my heart rate was at where it would be when I'm like fully recovered for a race. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I feel it was, I think it was probably a little higher than, than it normally would at a given pace. Um, just because like right now, if I go out running, if I'm going to run at 150 beats per minute on like just a road, a flat road at sea level, you know, that's going to be a low low six minute pace probably so what, whereas like four minute k's yeah yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's so yeah you can, so, sorry to interrupt you but can you do four minute k's at math because you're 30 aren't you yep mm -hmm. so yeah. 150 is your math yep mm -hmm. and you're doing four minute k's yeah if that translates to about like a, i think it's right now like i haven't gotten it as low as it will get when i get a little further into my training but mm. like today like like today it was 150 was around 610, 611 minute per mile. So yeah. I'd have to play see what that is per kilometer. Um, but you know, when I'm, when I'm really ready for a race, it's probably closer to a, to six flat, maybe even a pinch under if I'm really fit. Wow. That's um, fantastic. Yeah. So, so like in, at the faster study, my 150 rate was like well into the seven minute range. So Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of variables you can consider there. You can consider the the fact that I was probably still recovering from that 200-kilometer race, but you'd also could could consider the fact that I was very much going super low carbohydrate at the time to make sure that I fit well within their range for the, for the testing. Like, I didn't want to wreck their testing uh, protocol and come in there like, eating a little more carbohydrate than what um, their rec because they, they wanted everything to be pretty dialed. Yeah. Uh, I think it was like 
10 to 15%, depending on activity level, 10 to 15% carbohydrates. So I did definitely drop it for a couple of weeks, a little lower than um, I would have otherwise. And, you know, that may have also caused uh, the heart rate to be a little higher at a slower pace too. Um, that's, so that's, actually, I, that's actually quite fascinating to think about the effect that the 10 to 15% could have had on the study if others were similar to you where, you, you know, your heart rate is actually higher when your carbohydrates are a little bit too low? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would suspect that um, even if you would take um, the guys who were in that like 1.7 range, um, those were the guys who were probably the lowest carbohydrate out of the group or just the most fat adapted anyway. Mm-hmm. I would suspect that if you would do a strategic carbohydrate plan with them, uh, you would probably see performance. Well, I, I can almost guarantee you would see performance benefits. Um, certainly at a slow, at a shorter, faster distance. Maybe not some of these multi-day races or like hundred plus mile races where you just pretty much need to get into a zone one, zone two, and just hold it and not stop and not make any mistakes. But um, uh, if you're talking about like racing like a fifteen kilometer or a five kilometer or even a marathon for that matter. That strategic carbohydrate is that's kind of your ticket into the zone four, zone five type intensities, in my opinion. So, like, if you want to be burning some matches during during a race, then uh, I think that would probably help them quite a bit. Uh, but it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be that much, too. It's like you know, traditionally, it's like everyone thinks you know these elite marathoners they need to be doing seventy percent carbohydrate, and and really, you know. You could take someone who's really fat adapted um, and then maybe give them 20%, 30%, and they'll be just as well off, if not better, because then they're kind of bonk proof too. So, yeah, it's um, the best of both worlds. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love it's to one see. Those, Go on. Oh, it's, it's, it's just one of those things that it, it's almost goofy to consider too much of because it's like the tip of the spear type of uh, things. It's like we're talking about these guys who are running like a sub 210 marathon. You know, there's so few people like that that like the bulk of the people probably wouldn't wouldn't care so much. But it's interesting to kind of see like where that pendulum kind of swings or where that 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 perfect ratio would lie in someone like that. Yeah, I agree. I think it'd be really interesting to see Bollock and Finney do some studies on that because, as you know, mm-hmm. in the art and science of low carbohydrate performance, they're very big on the 50 grams of carbohydrates a day, which, as you also know, doesn't work for everybody. And I don't recommend my athletes go that low um, for very long at all. So I'd like to see that range change for the active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree. And I think I think most people through, you know, it's mostly an anecdotal evidence, I suppose, at this point. But like, Really, you know, unless we're going to sit around and wait a decade, you almost have to rely a little bit on that. Um, you know, you see some of the guys who are willing to kind of mess around with it, and you, you're finding that uh, in a super active person, 150 grams is kind of like that new 50 gram type of range. Where, uh, you know, if you're doing, if you're training for like an Ironman or something like that you probably should put your basement level closer to 100, 150 grams as opposed to 50. And, and you know, everyone is different. I did have a coaching client who was uh, running 100-mile weeks when he would peak, and he was still doing the intensity sessions uh, as well. And he would, he would go closer to 10%, um, and he didn't seem to suffer one bit from it. So 
you know, there's definitely some genetics at play or some variances at play too. So it just goes back to what we started with where you kind of got to treat yourself as an individual and, um, take the information that's available and don't be afraid to like play around with it and kind of find what works for you and then settle on what's good for you, not what's good for someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right with that sort of magic number, that 150, that's a significant difference in the amount of carbohydrates that you can eat at the right time, particularly if you are doing double sessions. So it's really important to work out where you sit on the spectrum because you obviously want to look at health and wellness benefits, but performance and longevity. I mean, I'm more concerned about the coaching client that you mentioned. I I hope that his, his genetics are on his side because, you know, is it sustainable for the long term? We don't know that yet. Right, exactly. And mm. I've had much more much more coaching client uh, examples where they came to me at 50 grams or lower, sometimes lower. You know, I've had occasional people come in, oh, I ask them, they're like, I've kind of been messing around with the whole high fat, low carb thing. And, um, you know, I don't know if I've quite figured it out yet. And I'm expecting them to come in and just have been doing it for like, a couple of weeks and they're not really like through that base phase yet but then it turns out they've been doing like 10 to 20 grams like for like close to a year and oh, really which and, is like yeah. no green oh. vegetables <laughs> right exactly it's like they're definitely removing from that calculation the um oh, fiber. fiber yeah but still that's that's incredibly low so like um, you know, I always, when I, when I see that, I, I, I kind of smile a bit cause I know as soon as I just drop in a small amount of carbohydrate at the right time, they're going to feel like it's rocket fuel because yeah. their system is, their system just hasn't, he had that high octane fuel source for such a long period of time. And, um, you know, you don't have to go crazy with it. You give them a little bit and see how they respond. You know, I usually, if someone who comes to me that low, I, I maybe raise them up to like 50 to 75 grams for a couple of weeks and see how that goes. And if they're still not really responding to the hard intensity stuff, then I go up a little higher, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see what, what, what comes to people seem to really gravitate towards, um, the extremes to some degree, especially the athletes, because they're kind of that type a, like I'll do what I have to do mentality. Whereas, you know, I think just a non-athletic person who's just looking to kind of like be healthy and get through their nine to five is a lot more less likely to, to say like, I'm going to go pure vegan or I'm going to go pure ketogenic. Um, so you end up with, with these type a individuals who are very much, um, able to kind of hold themselves accountable, which it can be their, (laughs) can be their strength and weakness at times, depending on what they're doing and their willingness to kind of, kind of come off of something. Oh, I totally agree, and I think that's what's really important to recognize. We're not trying to turn this into a diet where you have to log everything every day and get out your calculator and your kitchen scales. And what I took from when you were sharing what you eat, it was how you you eat real food and there doesn't seem to be too much of this obsessive approach to it, which I think is a big part of your success because we don't want to turn it into something that's stressful because we know how damaging stress is um, and because we want it to be as sustainable as possible. Right, exactly. Mm. And when you, when you have things figured out, like when you have something that's working for you, like your body does an amazing job at telling you what it wants and mm. what it needs. And that's one thing I found out, like especially after I had really dial, dialed in, I guess, for like a couple of years, I found that like 
you know, when my body says like, if I, if my body craves sugar now, it probably means I did something really intense and I was going too low carbohydrate. Um, so I can trust that and I can have like, I don't go crazy and eat like a huge pasta plate or anything like that, but you know, I'll, I'll mix in a, some melon or berries with my next meal or snack. And then, um, you know, I can trust those, those hunger signals and those craving signals as actual, like, you need this, this is in your best interest as opposed to like your body's on such a metabolic roller coaster, it doesn't know what to tell you and when to tell you it. Yeah, for sure. Obviously you can recognize the truth in that rather than just giving into the cravings and convincing yourself it's what you needed. Right, right. (laughs) Awesome. All right, the last question I wanted to ask you actually, I'm just more interested as to why you're so open with what you do. Like I'm sure that you could have kept – your strategies a secret. Uh, I also know on your blog you have, you know, your Strava and your plans and all of your training. Like, what made you decide to be so open with what you're doing? Um, and what do you think that that might do to say your competitors who will be very interested in learning all your secrets? <laughs> you know, it's um, it's what I think. It some of it is just like. Yeah, part of part of me, like, and that's probably the same reason why I went into teaching originally and coaching is because I enjoy like discovering things and then sharing it as opposed to discovering things and hiding it under a rock. Um, so for me, you know, like I obviously want to want to compete at a high level and do it as long as I can, but uh, you know, I don't necessarily want to do that in a way that would, uh, I don't want to do that by hiding things from other people. And, and, you know, it's, it's always interesting too. like, it's, there's, there's folks who will listen and folks who won't. And, uh, you know, it either, I think like, like, let's say I had a competitor who was, who was running the same time as I was, and then they switched to my diet for whatever reason. Um, and then started like (laughs) beating me on a regular basis. Like that wouldn't bother me so much. Just open-minded enough to do that to begin with, probably would have figured it out eventually anyway. So yeah. um, there's that, and um, it's it's also like uh, you know some of it's I think just the ultra marathon running community is a lot more open mm-hmm. uh, about stuff like that because there's there's about as much emphasis put in like the enjoyment of the sport, the community of the sport, the like the sharing and like socialization within it and things as there is about, all right, I got to make sure I beat so-and-so or I got to make sure I run a faster time. Um, There's some of that. And then there's also like, I think my, I'm always been more intrigued with like kind of seeing where I can get myself as opposed to like, um, can I beat this individual person? Mm. So like, you know, if I, I someone asked me once if like what I would do if someone broke my my hundred mile American record or my twelve hour world record if that would change what I would do if I didn't think I could run faster than that person and it really wouldn't because I I kind of want to see where my limitations are and if that puts me at the top of any given distance or any given event cool that's great but if it doesn't if it puts me second third or further down yet then um you know no big deal. So, um, you know, it's, it's nice and it, you know, it opens up opportunities too. like, you know, people see like that I'm willing to share and I'm willing to teach and Mm. they, that's a good trait in a coach. So 
um, they're more likely to come to you than they are someone who's kind of like, I guess, off the radar with what they're doing. Yeah, I think it's amazing. I think we're all really grateful that you are so open with the information that you share because we can all learn a lot. Um, obviously, it's your N equals one, but I think even that in itself teaches a big lesson as to how it is up to the individual to obviously have a guide, which is fantastic, but to still get out there and, and test and, and tweak and to always look for that ultimate individualization of a single approach. Right, right. And then there's like, you know, the other part of it is too, it's like I didn't go to like a school and pay for that information. Like I, I very much leaned on other people to learn that stuff. So mm -hmm. it's like to hide it then would be kind of like not passing it forward. Like, yeah. you know, so, someone shared, someone was open with me and shared with me um, or someone put on a podcast or wrote a book and shared stuff with me and I, I benefited from that. So like, you know, if, if I can kind of like forward the momentum a bit and, and show that, uh, I think that's cool. And I mean, it's also another reason why I don't really, you know, I, I don't have a big issue with people who have a completely opposite approach than I do. Um, because I think like if, as long as people are, are being sensible about it, um, you're, you're putting, you're putting a lot of good options out there that are probably better than what the standard American diet is. And, you know, a lot of the fast food junk options are, whether you're like raw vegan or you're like primal high fat, you know, both are probably positive steps away from processed, fake, packaged. So, like, at least, at least this information is being put out there so people have access to it as opposed to, like, kind of just saying, oh, well, I have no idea what it means to eat real food. I'm just going to, so I'm just going to go to McDonald's or something like that, you know. Yeah, it's, it's great to be part of the movement, as you say, and then it just keeps accelerating so we can change more lives. For sure. Awesome. Thank you so much for being so generous and sharing your story. It's been great to speak with you. Can you just direct our listeners to your online home where they can find out some more information about you and stay tuned for what you're up to next? Yeah, so um, I, I, I blog and put a lot of my training stuff on my website at ZachBitter.com as well as on Strava. Um, if you're interested in like some of the more day-to-day -day stuff, I, I definitely make use of all the social media platforms like mm -hmm. Twitter, Instagram, and my Facebook page and stuff where I'll, I'll, I'll put up a lot of stuff that I'm reading about at the time or things I'm doing in training, um, stuff like that, you know, the more in-the-moment type stuff. Mm. Uh, most, I, you can link to all that stuff on my website, though, at ZachBetter.com. Amazing. So head to the show notes to find out more, team. And thanks again, Zach. It's been great to have you on the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.